Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Vladimir Putin, and I'm taking a quick break from sitting on a giant tortoise in only my socks like a real man to tell you that when people ask me, Vlad, what's your poison? Well, firstly, I have them removed by my secret police and never heard from again for asking me such insolent queries. But then I say out loud to their irradiated corpse, my poison? Well, it's the partly political broadcast, of course. I just couldn't authoritarianate without it. Happy 200th episode, Papal Bro. Now, G up, Cecil. I've uprisings to suppress. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that also thinks a free press is vital. But once you've tried it, you should probably pay for gym membership or they'll get upset. I'm Tin and Yeah, but after four and a half years that somehow feel much... Much longer than that, this is episode 200 of the podcast. Yes, I'm surprised we've made it too. But it is, it is 200, that is for certain. And another thing that's for certain is that despite these times of constant uncertainty, there is always reassurance that no matter how bad or confusing things are, the British government will go out of their way to make them much worse. Maybe it's a Bullingdon Club ethos or something, but it certainly seems like the mentality is they may as well kick the country while it's down, as that's probably more economical. In current times, you might consider this an EU turn by the government, as it looks like they're planning legislation to override key parts of the withdrawal agreement. You know, the agreement they drafted, unlawfully prorogued Parliament to push through, and then insisted they had got it done with an oven-ready deal. It could be that this is all our mistake, of course, and it should have been clear that when we elected a Philandra Prime Minister, that an oven-ready deal was actually code for a meal for one. Or maybe we should have taken one look at Boris Johnson, a man who looks like what if Beaker from The Muppets had a stupid older brother with a thyroid issue, and realised chances are high he's never used an oven in his life and will either burn this to smithereens or leave it cold and untouched, wondering when someone else will come along to prepare it. Let's be fair, I'm not a fan of anything the government have done either, so I can imagine that they've looked at their withdrawal agreement a year later, thinking, ugh, who did that? And with a lack of accountability now being part of the Conservative way, chances are everyone pointed at everyone else in the Cabinet and now someone who empties the bins in number 10 has been fired. The key bits of the WA that will be affected? Oh, don't worry, it's only everything that was put in place to prevent border checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic, but as children's Halloween costume of someone trapped in the forever nightmare of middle management and Environment Secretary George Eustace, as he said, that's just tidying up loose ends. Though I get the feeling that's also what he'd say as he cut the rope on his companions while climbing a mountain because he felt they were weighing him down by carrying all the food. It's likely that this is all the sort of brinkmanship that we expect from Boris Johnson, who seemed very happy to play a game of chlorinated chicken with the country ever since arriving at Downing Street. You know, it's all the return again of chat about how a no deal would be a good outcome for the UK, though it's not certain if he means because food shortages would help his obesity tackling plan, or the lack of medicines would mean less people to cause pollution or spread the coronavirus. Johnson says if there's no trade agreement by October the 15th, then both parties should agree to move on, a phrase that he's always just used to mean, quick, look over there, or haven't you got something better to do, or please stop asking me difficult questions that I haven't thought of the answers to, or I might cry. All of which does sound like this is just the government having a tantrum, so the EU are coaxed into my style of parenting and going, oh for fuck's sake, stop whining, just have what you want if it'll give me some peace. 
I mean, why else make big idiot macho statements like the chief Brexit negotiator? And that's what happens when Play-Doh isn't looked after David Frost, saying that the UK isn't scared of walking away. Yeah, we know. That's why the Prime Minister regularly does it from his job and a succession of partners. Why else have the Environment Minister do the rounds defending the potential changes when the closest he's come to a trading table was on his family fruit farm selling a bunch of strawberries for a few quid? This is possibly why Eustace insisted on Radio 4 that huge tariffs on food will be fine, even though just a few years ago he had an acorn hard-on about fighting to pay less tax on pasties. But I guess pasties are the sort of food you can get on board with because they save you having to ever check what's inside and you only find out once you're in too deep to turn back. It'd be nice to not have to take everything anyone in the cabinet says with a pinch of salt so big that if you sprinkled it in a circle around Westminster, then Michael Gove wouldn't be able to travel anywhere. I can only assume that there are serious plans with a possible no deal ahead for salt pinching to become the UK's highest export. On Saturday, eco-campaigners Extinction Rebellion blocked delivery of newspapers including The Sun, Times, Daily Mail and The Telegraph, leading many like myself to worry we'd be seeing another toilet paper shortage. Actually, some people were really angry because they've not heard of the internet yet and didn't feel that trying to replicate their favourite newspaper articles by shouting xenophobic comments while standing topless spying on their neighbours would do the same job. These delivery blockades will have, at most, affected about 2 million people from reading something about how Meghan Markle once walked on the wrong side of an escalator or how refugees are coming to take away your keep calm and carry on posters. But of course, them getting those papers is much more important than saving the planet or even just making sure trees will still exist in 10 years so they can be given the worst punishment in death by being turned into one of those shit rags. And so both the Prime Minister and Home Secretary Pretty, if they call them French fries I won't eat them Patel, as entirely expected, jumped into fervid online shouting to save the country from the far more concerning extinction, that of scapegoats. Johnson took to Twitter to announce that a free press is vital in holding the government to account, which he's right about and why it's such a shame that we have vast swathes of ours owned by billionaires who will unquestionably promote his bollocks and even pay him to write for them. Maybe he should really listen to whoever it is that runs his Twitter account because his Prime Minister banned the Mirror from attending lots of the Conservative election campaign and won't send any of their party to do Channel 4 News or a number of others, he could learn something useful that he won't read in any of his favourite free papers. In fact, the UK has been given a Level 2 media freedom alert by the Council of Europe after denying a foreign and defence policy news site to classified UK from receiving any communications from the Ministry of Defence. Though to be fair to the MOD, that is high levels of defensiveness. I suppose when all of that is taken into consideration, the Prime Minister's comment about free press being vital in holding the government to account might not have been him backing the notion, but more an explanation for why they don't want one, but can everyone still blame XR for not wanting our kids to spend every day swimming? Pretty Patel stepped to the virtual parapet to say that Extinction Rebellion's attack on our free press, society and democracy is completely unacceptable. I understand that because if XR were doing all those things, then what would the Home Secretary have left to do on her list? And frankly, there's enough redundancies at the moment already. Earlier in the week, Patel had once again tweeted about activist lawyers frustrating the removal of asylum seekers from the UK. Or, ironically for the Home Office, if I translate that into English, I am sad that the law means I can't deport anyone who I think looks funny. Obviously, a lot of legal professionals were angry that they were being targeted just for doing their jobs and upholding sovereign British law. But I think it's cool if Pretty Patel wants to call lawyers activists as long as every job gets an appropriate descriptive precursor. For example, disgraced politician Home Secretary, or useless Prime Minister, or spineless Health Secretary, and so on. Speaking of the Health Secretary, you know, Matt Hancock, the one who always looks like he'd say he's into the Spice Girls just to impress some kids, he has blamed the big rise in coronavirus cases over the weekend on younger people. So it's great that all the schools have gone back now, because I'm sure that'll really help, what with everyone previously reassuring us that children will definitely be safe there. Hey, maybe we should all go to the schools till this is all over with. Ah, or maybe not though, as 200 pupils and 21 staff members are currently isolating after positive tests were found at eight different schools in Liverpool. One health expert has said that ministers have lost control of the virus, which I don't think is fair, as it suggests they had control of it at some point first. It should be all okay though, as Matt Hancock says that we'll have a working vaccine by next year, which we all know means that he'll give several billion pounds to Dido Harding to see if eating a biscuit cures you from Covid, and when it doesn't, they'll all go, oh well, we tried and it was a world-leading try, and give up. Lockdown restrictions in Bolton and Trafford were put back in place just 24 hours after being lifted, as infection rates have tripled within a week. Still, on the plus side, it's a great way to make sure Westminster don't keep ignoring the north. Cases have also been rising in Scotland, with Glasgow now under restrictions on household visits, which I don't think is the sort of independence many were hoping for. 
Anti-lockdown protesters took to Glasgow Green to denounce the coronavirus as a hoax, though that could have just been the noise they made when they coughed. What might reassure everyone about these higher rates of infection is that Boris Johnson has declined to meet families whose loved ones have died of Covid, which is probably the most compassionate thing he's ever done, considering how much they've suffered already. The PM had told reporters that of course he'd meet anyone bereaved by Covid-19, but then told a campaign group that actually now he can't. I suppose with the chance it'll all kick off again this winter, Johnson knows that much like his kids, if he agrees to see one, suddenly there'll be loads more he hadn't even thought about and he'd have no time left for avoiding work. Especially when he's been attending PAC 1922 committee meetings with over 50 attendees, even though the room had maximum capacity of 29 and gatherings of 30 are supposedly illegal. I guess the difference is so many of those that attended are already dead inside. So here we are, September 2020, with schools going back, people going back to work, coronavirus cases rising and a Brexit no deal back on the table. Still, it's nice that with most of March spent in lockdown, we're getting to redo it all over again. Maybe I'm wrong about the government's recklessness and that actually they do think about the future and how, with a no-deal Brexit, no one will travel to us or ever leave again so we can contain coronavirus on this island forever like a modern-day Kalua Papa, just without the nice weather. Like a sort of reverse colonisation where we just stay exactly where we are, conquering ourselves with willful ignorance. Perhaps that is a good outcome for everyone after all, you know, except us. In other news, Chancellor and star of Flushed Away, Rishi Sunak, has promised that there'll be no tax rise horror show, though it's hard to know what he means by that, as to Conservatives, Robin Hood is a horror, whereas something like It, a film about a hideous clown who ruins children's lives, is seen as a guide to leadership. Sunak has unveiled a two billion kickstart job scheme for young people, which was said to prevent an entire generation being left behind. That's nice, now they'll be able to join everyone else in feeling depressed that they have the adequate experience, but still can't get any work because there's none left. And lastly, social distancing in theatres could be dropped very soon, as Culture Secretary and nervous bollard Oliver Dowden has started an initiative called Operation Sleeping Beauty, because much like the fairy tale, a lot of people in the entertainment world have had their livelihoods put to sleep thanks to careless pricks. Dowden wants to get theatres packed again in time for Christmas so that pantomime season can happen as per usual. But sadly, Oliver, the time for venues getting a large-scale show ready for December is behind you. Maybe in its place we should just encourage families up and down the country to watch the Culture Secretary on the telly and boo. Yeah, episode 200. What am I doing with my life? Sorry, I mean, yeah, we made it. That is over 4,000 minutes of jokes that all rapidly became out of date minutes after releasing them. Over 6,000 minutes of interviews that haven't yet helped us fix any of the world's ills. And more descriptions of MPs than you could shake a parliamentary ceremonial mace at. No, I didn't count the descriptions. No, you do it. You do it. Over half a million people have listened to this show, um, although they could have just also been hitting markers played on the podcast apps, but it doesn't matter. I will never know. Those are some stats. 200 blooming episodes. Ugh, back when this podcast started, Brexit hadn't happened. Obama was still president of the US. The Zika virus was about, but mainly only affected pregnant women, so most of the world's media and governments ignored it. Uh, in the UK, our prime minister was still ham souffle David Cameron. Junior doctors were causing mangled pipe cleaner Jeremy Hunt to hide in bushes and everyone was only angry at patchwork chair Jeremy Corbyn for not wanting nuclear war like a total arsehole. I mean, if only he knew then what 2020 would have been like four years later, I'm sure he'd have been campaigning for trying to be used there and then to get this over with. I mean, I would have. I'm not saying it's his podcast's fault for the state of things now, but I mean, it has existed throughout there and there are absolutely no other connecting factors between all the instants since at all. Uh, none. None whatsoever. Well, that's the story I'm going for anyway, and I reckon if we can get everyone to blame absolutely everyone on this show it'll get even more listeners from all those contrarian idiots who do it just to own the libs or something and frankly if mark dolan can sell his soul for talk radio cash the rest of us need to step up no actually i can't even do that even joking about it makes me sad oh mark you twat anyway i thought for the 200th episode as i haven't really planned anything particularly special it might be nice just to listen back to the opening few minutes of just what this show was like back on january the 19th 2016 Hello and welcome to the first ever partly political broadcast podcast or the Parpol Bro Pod, which no one will ever call it ever. I'm Tin and Yeb because sometimes names work like that. And thank you so much for downloading this podcast. Uh, this is going to be number one of hopefully many, many regular satirical podcasts where I'm going to be looking back at the past week of UK political news. And I'm going to ask really important questions like, rather than David Cameron demand that Muslim women learn English or be deported, 
Wouldn't it be far more in line with British values for anyone who doesn't speak the language of the country they live in to just shout and point at things they want? Ah, terrible idea. The sound quality was shocking, wasn't it? No wonder so many of you dropped it after that first one. I don't blame you in the slightest. Thanks to those of you who did stick around, though, because without you, I'd just be telling these jokes to my wife and she'd be very sad about it. And all my interviewees would just block my number from their phones and report me as spam. Why do you keep calling? Why? Worse still, uh, I'd not have been able to claim any of my podcast equipment as expenses. And as we all know, that's the most important thing. Uh, I'm joking. Please do pay your tax, though. You do it, not me. I need to buy crisps. But you should. As it is episode 200, um, I won't plug all of the places you should give me money. You know, Kofi, Patreon, the Acast supporter scheme. Or where you should review this show on all the podcast apps where you need to review this show. Because you've heard me do that like 200 times or less. But instead, by popular demand, I asked my agent to do it again. And she still repeats it all like a man whenever she hears the word podcast because I am definitely Britain's best parent. Record some stuff for the for my podcast. Don't have to the petri. Don't have the battery. Donate to the battery? No. What what do you say? Go down the cafe and go down Kofi. Kofi and from Aurora, have you ever listened to the partly political broadcast? Broadcast. Yeah, but have you listened to it? Um, it's got ice cream on it and. Lollies on it. Has it? Mm-hmm. And is that what is that what the show's about? It's about mm-hmm. ice creams and lollies. Mm-hmm. Is that what you wish it was about? Mm-hmm. Would you listen to it then? Yes. Yeah. What would you do a podcast about? I did it flowers on it. I did a pink flower on it. She didn't bloody mention the ACAST support option though, did she? Honestly, you can't get the talent anymore. Um, and thank you tons this week to Taz, somebody and Kim who donated to the Kofi. Um, and don't worry, I'll be bringing back the same old mantra for the next 200 episodes until I've drained all of your money and every one of you has reviewed the show on your podcast apps of choice at least 16 times each. Uh, before we crack on with this 200th episode, a few very quick things. Um, firstly, oh my goodness, I'm starting to put in a few live gigs uh, here and there. I think I've got three at the end of this month. There's one so far for next month, possibly another um so do check out my own website tinadub.co.uk to see when those are if you'd like to come along no idea what any of my jokes are anymore who knows how it will go but hopefully more and more will appear um also i've written a piece in this month's empire magazine if you get that uh it's nothing to do with politics at all um but it's the new magazine with the june film on the cover the new june and the cover looks a bit like it's covered in sand it's not you won't find bits of it in your socks and pants you'll be fine um and i've written in it about watching the korean film old boy for the very first time um, that's the original one, not the newer Josh Brolin one, where he's not even Thanos in it. So what is the point? What is the actual point, Josh? Ugh. Stupid Americans thinking they have to redo every film for people who can't read subtitles. I don't even think Donald Trump deserves films anyway. Um, but yeah, do check that out. I'm really proud of that little piece. So if you read that magazine, have a look. Um, also, look, I'm aware this sounds a bit corporate but I promise it's not. I mean, it probably is. I don't really know anymore, but these are the things that the coronavirus has made us do. Um, Penfold Pensions have kindly made me an affiliate, uh, which means that if anyone joins up to their pension plan and uses the code Tiernan uh, or the link that I've put in the podcast blurb, I get 25 quid in hard cash. Um, and the reason I did that is because I genuinely use it and it is a genuinely useful pension site for self-employed people in that it takes into account that I might be completely broke most of the time and can't really put anything in it. Um, beforehand, I generally assume that I'd just be working for the entire rest of my life and then probably beyond that as some sort of ghost tour guide. But this means that I might now get to still work for the rest of my life but occasionally afford a coffee too. Um, anyway... Look, they're at getpenfold.com and if you're a freelance idiot like me, I definitely, definitely recommend them. And if you do join them, please sign up with the code Tiernan uh, with a capital T uh, so that I can have some money. Thank you. Uh, and lastly, uh, nothing to do with me whatsoever, but the amazing band Tung, I bloody love Tung, uh, they've started a new podcast called Dead Club, all about our attitudes to death. And the first episode uh, is with the amazing author of Grief is the Thing with Feathers and Lanny, Max Porter. Oh, I love his book so much. I honestly can't recommend this podcast enough. Um, it is 
is properly beautiful and a really, really insightful listen about death and grief and kindness. And, oh, it just warmed my very soul. So do check that out, um, you know, for when you've wasted all your shouting listening to this show. Right. Um, woohoo! 200th episode. And on this one, I am talking to investigative journalist Emma Yule all about the companies that have made money from government contracts during the coronavirus crisis and why loads and loads of questions need to be asked about it. Uh, plus, because it's episode 200, I felt a little Brexit fallout was necessary. I know it's your favourite jingle. No, I didn't even do a survey. I just know. But if you want to wait for the opinion results, then I understand. I'm Donald Trump, and when I'm not greeting America make again or calling fallen soldiers losers, I mean, I don't fall over, only when the ramp is really, really steep. And what about sharks? Why can't we just bomb them? The Democrats, that's why. Some of them are sharks, you know. They just wear suits and hats so you can't tell. When I'm not injecting bleach or saying that some coronaviruses are good guys, then I'm listening to a portly pole hole breakfast, which isn't fake news. Or it might be, but the chubby bearded guy talks so fast, I don't know. I just don't know. I blame a childhood of watching the A-Team for making me think that it's important that the right people do the right job. I mean, it made sense that Mr T did all the muscle work, face-charmed people, and Murdoch did anything unhinged that involved an invisible dog. It may also be this sort of education that led to years of me never questioning why all the people in top positions were old white men soaking cigars who really didn't pull their weight. But I think it's fair to say that most of us would be concerned if their brain surgeon was the scarecrow from Oz, or the person who took your car in for an MOT was Amish and believed you travelled there by devil magic. And yet one of the main features of the last 10 years of Conservative government has been to very much do the opposite. To name a select few occasions, remember during the Olympics when G4S was hired to do the event security but didn't bother turning up to do it. Though judging by some of the things they've been accused of since, perhaps it was safer that they didn't. During all the no-Brexit preparation, then-Transport Secretary and J.K. Simmons' most unrealistic character, Chris Grayling, spent millions and millions of pounds on ferry contracts for a company that had absolutely no ferries. And, of course, there's been every single time Michael Gove was hired to do anything. Well, except for when he became Justice Secretary and reversed everything his predecessor Chris Grayling did. So perhaps it shouldn't be unsurprising, and, well, it isn't, that questions have recently arisen about some of the very costly contracts the government have handed out during the coronavirus pandemic. Contracts that, thanks to the coronavirus legislation, were handed out with no tender process. No, that doesn't just mean there was no loving thoughtfulness in the way they were distributed. It means the usual stringent and transparent selection process wasn't in place. Because, you know, it was an emergency and all that. So while you'd hope that the seriousness of the situation meant the government were quick to choose only the utmost suitable recipients of, for example, a multi-million pound deal to supply PPE, instead they chose a company with absolutely no record of ever supplying PPE. There is an indication that some of these companies may have had a more tender process of the other kind, with various links to Brexit lobbyists, and some of the companies appeared to be completely and utterly dormant, though I suppose now being absolutely inactive is considered prime ministerial. And of course, all of this might be totally fine and justifiable, but a little bit of transparency and openness would be nice to let us, the taxpayers whose dosh is paying for all of this, know just why these companies were chosen over UK businesses with a proven track record. And more importantly, why I, with absolutely no proven record of ever supplying PPE, didn't also qualify to receive a quarter of a billion pounds. I mean, I'd at least tried to make some masks out of old pants or something. This week, I spoke to HuffPost UK journalist Emma Yule. Emma is a fantastic investigative journalist who's previously shed light on the contaminated blood scandal that affected so many in the 70s and 80s, as well as working with survivors to look into historical cases of child abuse in Islington. Recently, Emma has been looking at just who's been profiting in these times where so many of us have lost income, and her work has led to renewed calls for an inquiry into the hows and whys of the government's emergency spending. Emma very kindly agreed to break it all down for me and I asked her just why we needed to be concerned about all of this, if the Nightingale Hospital was of any use at all and if she'd give me a few million quid to make a mask out of old pants. OK, I didn't ask her the last one, but for you listeners, the offer is still there. Special 200th episode promotion. Sorry, I mean, here is Emma. Hi, Emma. Um, thanks for uh, letting me interview you today. Um, your investigation uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago um, showed that some companies have made an awful lot of money um, from government spending during the pandemic. Uh, and, and I suppose the first question I should ask you is obviously it was a, it was a an unparalleled situation, a global pandemic. These things, you know, come out of the blue where some unexpected spending is expected. Um, what made this spending uh, unusual and why maybe should we be concerned about it? Well, 
Um, thanks for having me on, <laughs> first off. And um, I mean, I think the first thing to say is I think the reason why it's important to scrutinise this spending is because the, the sums of money involved are literally eye-wateringly large. Um, there's been huge, huge sums spent on PPE testing, things like building the Nightingale hospitals, all, all of the things that we've become really familiar with as, as being sort of vital parts of the pandemic response. Um, and we first became interested in sort of looking at the spending because at the point where the rest, the whole of the rest of the economy had sort of ground to a halt because of lockdown, the one area where there was a huge boom in spending was, was through government and through this um, sort of uh, emergency spending to do with the pandemic. But what was, and I mean, I would say, I don't think anybody would, would quibble over that, but I think what's been really unusual um, about this spending is that it was all done under new emergency procurement rules to do with COVID. And that allowed the government to move really quickly to put these contracts in place. But it also meant that there were no tenders um, and that the contracts weren't advertised in advance due to the sort of extreme urgency of the pandemic. Um, and so what's happened is that the usual checks and balances that would be in place to ensure that there's no nepotism, that you get value for money, that the government's getting the best deals, weren't there because of the speed um, that things were happening. Um, and so that's inevitably, inevitably led um, to sort of, as more information about these contracts has come out and some questions have been raised about some of the larger deals to allegations of cronyism and that value for money wasn't achieved and just to questions really about how and why um, certain companies were, were given contracts. Um, and I think all of that has meant that it's fallen to journalists and, uh, you know, and anyone that can to try and scrutinise these contracts when information is coming into the public domain, because we are only seeing the information after the deals have happened. Um, and all of these deals, particularly to do with PPE and testing, were absolutely vital to, to the pandemic response. And particularly in the case of PPE, you know, it's life-saving equipment. So um, I think it's, it's really important to understand what decisions were taken and whether they were the right ones, whether they delivered value for money, whether they actually got the right products. Um, I think the other thing that I, um, I suppose, was really conscious of um, all the while working on this investigation is that it, it might seem quite technical or, or sort of data-ish to, to look at contracts, but what we're talking about here are huge sums of taxpayers' money. Um, at a time when there's a real pressure um, on government finances. And I think every extra pound that was spent on a contract that was too expensive or that or goods that weren't able to be used is one pound less that can, was available to go into frontline NHS resources and other public sector services. So I think it's, it's really, really important that we, we keep a close eye on, on, on how that money was spent. Yeah, I think I think it was uh, one on the PPE contracts that the top spend was two hundred and fifty two and a half million, which is eye watering. Uh, I sort of I had to uh, count the noughts. I, I go, my maths wasn't that good to, uh, good enough to kind of work out what it was immediately. Um, and I j just um, quickly, uh, just for the sake of listeners and for me, really. But the normally the, you, you mentioned there'd be a tendering process, so that would just be that companies would compete for the contract normally. Exactly. So a, a usual process might be that the government would issue a contract notice saying we want to procure, I don't know, say £300 million worth of face masks for PPE and would publish that. And then companies that felt that they would be able to supply that product would bid and put in competitive tenders to say what, you know, what masks they had, how much they would supply them for um, and, and further sort of information about the deal. Um, and then the government would analyse those those um, bids and, and pick the best one or you know have people in to discuss further so there would there would be a level of sort of openness around the process where anyone that felt that they could meet that brief would be able to bid for the contract and also there would be a certain amount of information in the public domain about the contracts and um, for people, other people to be able to scrutinize so um that's that's the benefit i think of having that tendering process and why those procurement rules are in place to ensure that there's a sort of formal procedure around um open access to any company that feels that they could meet um meet the contract and also that you know sort of checks and balances for the government to get the best value for money as well and these the companies that did get the contracts did they fulfill those contracts um because obviously there've been quite a lot of stories about things, you know, issues with testing problems. We've been having it this week where testing sites are miles and miles away from where people are checking them. And then there were issues with track and trace failures and there's, you know, PPE that didn't work. Um, so, you know, how many of those companies did sort of fulfil the contracts? Is there, a, uh, is there a correlation with some of the ones that were given vast amounts of money and some of the issues that we saw? 
I mean, I think the simple answer about whether the contracts were fulfilled is that we just don't know. <laughs> um, there, there have been some big, high-profile examples of um, ones that the press have found out about. And, you know, we, we, that's obviously the point of the investigation that we did as well to try and scrutinise some of these contracts. But there is no, there's no public mechanism for us to check what, what happened and whether, um, whether the, the products that were, that were supplied under these contracts actually met um, met the standards and were used. Um, I think what we do know, and I can take you through some of the examples, is um, so you've, you've mentioned the largest um, PPE deal that was agreed with an investment company called Iander Capital Limited, which was for £253 million, um, so a huge sum of money on, on one government contract. Um, that deal has proved highly controversial and actually led, we've since found out, led to the purchase of 50 million masks that were unusable by the NHS. Um, now, Ianda says that it met all the safety standards that the government had asked for and it, it, it met the, the technical briefs that it was given by government. But nevertheless, you know, that, that's, that's at least part of that deal has resulted in, in masks that weren't able to be used. Um, another example is there was a huge testing contract went to a company called Randox Laboratories Limited for £133 million. Um, in July, the government ordered a pause on all of the Randox test kits, saying that some didn't meet safety um, standards. Um, both of those deals have proved highly controversial within their own industries because other um, British companies and other smaller to medium-sized firms that HuffPost spoke to have talked about feeling locked out of the process and feeling that they had really competitive bids um, that, that were just ignored or they didn't hear back on or, or were rejected. Um, and I think it's increased anger within those industries that they see these big deals going to, and in the case of Randox, a very established big pharmaceutical company, but in the case of Ianda, an investment capital firm that had no history of supplying PPE. I think questions are raised about why, why were those bids successful when they have resulted in, in, in products being supplied that ultimately couldn't be used. Um, and I think that is what's driving a lot of the um, sort of anger and scrutiny um, around what's happened and where money has been spent at the moment. And certainly even since we've published, I've been getting calls from other PPE and testing companies who feel that they put in very competitive bids. Um, I mean, just to give you one example on, on the PPE side, we, we spoke to one UK firm who put in a plan to manufacture face masks for 10p a unit. And they were offering to make 75 million masks a month at no profit. Their, their idea was that they would help the government to set up its own um, factory, essentially manufacturing this stuff itself, which would have secured supply and meant that there was no profit to be paid. Um, which is, you know, a, a slightly different deal from just sort of landing on the runway with face masks, but um, I think arguably looked, looked like a, a, a really sensible deal. Um, they were bidding at about the same time as Iander were um, for, for this deal that ended up in masks that couldn't be used. And I think their question is, why would that deal have been successful when we, we had a much more sustainable, uh, we would argue cheaper, um, uh, you know, solution to the problem? And I suppose there's also questions of why wouldn't you support a British industry and put money back into the British economy at a time when it's very much needed? And create jobs as well. I think, you know, it would have been a new factory with, with probably hundreds of, of jobs. So I think all of these questions um, are, are raised. And uh, what where I think put people are incredibly frustrated is they just don't know why their bid wasn't successful or why, why they weren't the ones that were sort of called to, to give some more information. Um, I mean, I would say that just to highlight that, you know, we're, we're not implying any wrongdoing on the part of the companies, but I think where the questions are raised is about how government went about um, this process and picking who they did pick and, and whether the, the right decisions were made. And the government says that it did all the right due diligence um, and, you know, the, the contracts were all checked to the usual level of scrutiny. It says that working with the private sector um, meant that we had a better pandemic response. But um, I think the reasons why there have been calls for an inquiry over this is that um, the government might say that, but there's no way for us to know whether, you know, whether that's true or not. We, they, they, they say they've done all the due diligence, but, but how do we know? And there are examples coming through, such as the ones we've just talked about that, that raise questions about that, I think. Well, I suppose, especially when, as you mentioned earlier, some of those companies don't have any history of supplying PPE. And and am I right in thinking some of them were dormant companies as well or have since been found That's dormant? Right. Yeah. So um, one striking um, statistic that we found that I think is that sort of says a lot to me is that of the top 10 companies that had the high, that were handed the highest value deals to supply PPE, um, five of those 10 had no previous um, experience with um manufacturer or supply of PPE that we could find so and 
those, I think all of those contracts were worth a combined 700 million or something like that. So that's an awful lot of money. Um, we also found a number, number of examples of dormant companies that had, that had won um, contracts. So the, the particular one we highlighted, there was uh, two large PPE contracts worth 49 million went to a company that um, in January was registered as dormant with assets of only 100 pounds. Um, I actually ended up speaking to the owner of that company and, and he said that um, their track record of um, manufacturing wasn't in the UK, but was in fact in China, Thailand, Hong Kong and India, um, and that they'd offered the government what he described as um, various levels of security and de-risking. So um, I, I suppose that that's why they were um, justifying the fact that they, they would have um, had a good proposition for government, even though they you know, they were a dormant company at the time that they, they, they bid. But I think the question it raises for me is how would the Department of Health and, and Social Care have been able to choose a company that was listed as dormant that didn't have a website? How, how are you gathering information to know that that's a good deal for, for the government? We, we just don't know that at the moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And we'll be back with Emma in a minute. But first, I'm Alexander Hamilton. And let me tell you, the only thing I don't like about the party political broadcast is that I'm not in the room where it happens. Well, sometimes I am. Being a ghost is great, except when you record it in your pants, Tiernan. I'm not raising a glass to that freedom. No. One of the things I asked you all if you fancy sending in for this week's show, uh, being the 200th episode and all that, uh, were any questions or comments that you wanted to ask me, and if you fancied recording them on your phone and sending them in. Well, as is the raging success of this podcast and the strong connection that I have with you, the listeners, um, I received just one uh, in tweet form. So thank you, Andy, for this. And his question was, will we survive three more years of the corrupt lying Tories? Whoa, try not to be too non-partisan, Andy. Jesus. And how long until people still wrongly blame the EU and demand we rejoin? Well, Andy, in answer to the first bit of that, um, yeah, I reckon we will survive uh, three more years of the corrupt lying Tories. I mean, I will. Anyway, I'm starting to collect bits of wood to board the windows up with, and I'm learning how to survive on just boxes of crackers and the knowledge that saying I told you so will nourish my soul. I'm also learning how to say I told you so underwater for when climate change hits. Um, in all seriousness, though, I, I hope we do. Uh, what will likely happen is that many of us will survive but have a really, really shit time and a lower quality of life. Uh, and then also many of us won't survive and will die thanks to further neglect, whether that's to do with just coronavirus or a further depletion of social care. And of course, Jeff Bezos will probably go and live on the moon and cry gently freeze himself so he's still alive in the year 3000, which I think McFly sung about. What we all have to remember is that there are ways to fulfil things our community needs, even if the government will neglect to do so. Uh, there are collectively more people that want a progressive future than people people who don't. It's just that at the moment, the arseholes are louder, though that will change when my daughter works out what a megaphone is. And as I heard someone say, 
kindness is radical and uh, that is the most dr- drastic thing that we can do right now is be nice to people oh more importantly uh, Boris Johnson can't have that long left to live I mean he looks like shit so in answer to your second question Andy uh, I'll give it about five minutes probably about five minutes right if you want to send in any other questions for those sorts of insightful answers either record them or write them or draw them or just scream them to all the usual places and now Brexit fallout Brexit fallout The first Brexit fallout on this podcast was back in episode 25 on the 28th of July. As before then, there was just another shit jingle about living with or without EU that I'm just very sorry I put any of you through. Anyway, here's what I recorded on the first ever Brexit fallout over four years ago. Theresa May has spent the first few weeks of her Prime Minister role travelling around Europe asking other heads of state not to hate her as it was all balloon faces fault in the first place. And so it currently looks like we won't actually be Brexiting anytime soon or at least not until next year. It seems that this is one of those breakups where, despite it definitely being over, we're still sleeping on the sofa in the flat share until we can find something else, no matter how inconvenient it might be. Merkel is back not triggering Article 50 just yet, which would give the UK two years to get its shit together and pack its bags, instead saying that the UK should take a moment first and identify its interests. It's not entirely clear how long that moment will be, especially as yet the government's interests really aren't very obvious. Theresa May and the new Chancellor, Philip Hammond, want to make sure that close ties with the EU are kept, but newly appointed International Trade Secretary and fucking disgrace Liam Fox wants us instead to focus on deals with non-EU countries first. And this is causing issues amongst the Cabinet with the Brexiteers, or as I like to call them, destructive careless wankers, you know, Boris Johnson, David Davis and Liam Fox, who all now have prime Brexit roles. And they're concerned that May and Hammond are going for a Brexit light affair which is sort of just like a Brexit, only less damaging to the UK's health. But Theresa May is PM, so she's going to be the one that dictates which way it goes. And with visits to Ireland, Poland and Slovakia this week, in the words of Maloko, she may make this moment last. Theresa May is a bit like the teacher who tells her pupils if they finish their work they can play outside, but keeps giving them work and locks the doors and burns everything outside just to make sure they can't. How nice to think that here we are all this time later and everything is all sorted and fine. (laughs) But of course, it's merely the same shit, different twats. And the big news this week is that Johnson could be introducing a new internal market bill. Is the internal market what you call it when you eat something and your body exchanges it for poo? No, but we should all call it that. An internal market is like a single market, as in a free trade area, but the British government can't call the UK's own single market the single market, as it'd confuse everyone, and they'd probably have to leave that one too, and then we'd all just have to trade within our own households. And yesterday, my daughter, sorry, agent, tried to sell me three crisps for either ten minutes or nine pounds, and I just can't keep getting fleeced like that. This internal market bill is said to undermine the withdrawal agreement, yes, the one that the Conservatives all overwhelmingly voted for, and the one that Johnson had said got Brexit done. And yes, the one that was pretty much like former Prime Minister and wall-hanging Theresa May's deal that Johnson resigned his position as Foreign Secretary over. So of course, there's every chance that in a month or so's time, this internal market bill will be called inadequate, Johnson will denounce Remainers for not physically removing his fingers from his ears to warn him about it, and then they'll demand the EU let us stay in the single market or something, as it's awful of them to try and stop us. Number 10 have said that this new bill won't tear up the existing treaty and will just make minor clarifications in extremely specific areas, which probably means bits that Johnson hasn't read and will never bother to. In the OGWA, the Northern Ireland Protocol was the bit the UK and EU agreed on to try and vaguely solve, but not really, the issue of the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, meaning that Northern Ireland would follow some EU customs rules after Brexit and customs declarations would be needed between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, as well as Great Britain to Northern Ireland and the Republic. So Northern Ireland would sort of be more EU than UK, which, as we all know, wouldn't cause any issues at all, what with history and everything. But now the government is saying that they want to have something in place in case they can't get something in place with the EU by the end of the year, something that would only happen because the UK government keep getting very angry about things they put in their own agreement about fishing and letting people use tax havens, because, you know, we have to keep Britain for the hard-working fishermen and all those people who don't really work but keep their money in the Cayman Islands instead of helping the NHS. True Brits, or tax exiles. We don't really know what will be in this bill until it's published on Wednesday, but it will apparently say that ministers can decide what goods were at risk of entering the EU when passing between Britain and Northern Ireland and so might be subject to tariffs, and that would allow ministers to scrap export declarations for things between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, and that would mean EU state aid requirements, which require governments to help homegrown businesses, would only apply to Northern Ireland. 
at the moment, uh, state aid means that the British government can't subsidise companies in Northern Ireland, as that would give them an unfair advantage over competitors in the Republic. And that could also include British companies who have significant subsidiaries in Northern Ireland. So obviously that sort of thing makes Brexiteers angry, as it means EU law will still apply to some British companies. But by introducing a bill that stops the EU from having that power, that will stop that from happening. But it could also breach the Northern Ireland Protocol and then render the whole thing shut all over the floor and a no-deal swinging through the roof into our face. This could all be a load of bluster just to try and get a great last-minute deal, so it looks like Johnson has managed not to screw up one thing and the EU have conceded to the UK's might or some shit that he'll probably pay several million to have a friend write a children's book about. Or this is a full whammo push towards definitely saying yes to no deal, and hey-ho, there's no medicine now, but at least we can get loads of fish no one in the UK eats. Maybe we could apply them to wounds or strap them to our faces as virus protectors. Worth a try. Will the government reneging on its own deal affect our trade deals with other countries? Maybe, but also remember, most countries just want to sell shit and probably don't care that much. What it might mean, though, is that the UK government could potentially get taken to the European Court of Justice for breaking a legal agreement. And if that happens, I really hope they televise it and I'll buy in the popcorn. We'll know more on Wednesday, but as with the last four years of this, probably not that much more, and probably likely somehow, less. The last thing in this week's Brexit fallout is that the UK government have missed the deadline to provide guidance on the correct labelling for food and drink after Brexit, because of course they have. This means that there could be food shortages as a result in Northern Ireland particularly, as supermarkets in Britain that sell to them would need completely different labels in order to fit with the EU regulations that Northern Ireland will still have, and frankly a lot of them can't be bothered. On the plus side, that might make Northern Ireland a really great place to sell all the fish that no one likes. Labelling is apparently really, really complex, something you'd think the government should understand on account of how regularly they label people they don't like. And now, back to Emma. Yeah, and, and again, I suppose in contrast to all those companies that were in the UK that had all that, uh, you know, that, that CV and and could provide things in a very quick and, and cheap amount of time. It sort of vaguely reminds me of um, during the Brexit procedures when Chris Grayling hired a ferry company that didn't have any ferries. Uh, if, <laughs> if you remember that incredible move. Um, the You also uh, investigated the Nightingale Hospital and because uh, quite a lot of money went into those. And then, I mean, my... I don't know much about the ones around the rest of the country, but I remember in London it wasn't used very much and then it was just dismantled. And uh, your investigation found that KPMG uh, was hired for quite a lot of work. Yeah, um, it's this, uh, there's, this is one of the areas of spending actually where there's been, I think there's, we would argue, the greatest amount of secrecy around because there's still not really been um, any contracts published which show who the private firms who worked on the Nightingale hospitals were. Um, I mean, I think it's the Nightingales is such a tricky area, I think, because um, we can all remember at the start of the pandemic when there was this real fear that, that the NHS would be overwhelmed. And I think there was huge public support for setting up the Nightingales. Um, there were a real flagship of the government's response, very popular with the public. And I think, you know, for me personally, to have extra hospital capacity there still seems like a really sensible plan. However, having said that, I think the fact that it is something that's been popular with the public and arguably necessary doesn't mean that there shouldn't have been scrutiny again on, on how much they cost, who built them and what they're being used for. Um, all we do know about the Nightingales at the moment is that um, the government issued contracts to hospital trust for £348 million pounds to, to build the hospital. So we know that that's, that's the money that was budgeted for it. Um, no um, contract information has come into the public domain yet about the private firms that actually built those companies and um, we we know HuffPost found out that KPMG were paid um, almost a million pounds for three months work on one Nightingale hospital in Harrogate, uh, in Harrogate sorry um, but we had to use hospital trust spending records to actually find that information um, and just just to give you an idea um, hospital trusts, councils, other public bodies have to um, publish um, records of all spending over 500 pounds um, and it was through that record system that I was able to find out um, that spending but it just seemed totally bonkers to me that um, there's more information in the public domain about £500 worth of spending with hospital trusts or councils than there is about contracts issued by government worth you know hundreds of millions of pounds so that gives you a really concrete example of, of the level of information that, that is sort of missing in some cases in the public domain um, I think what we don't really know about is is how much money was spent with KPMG or other consultancy firms across the, the Nightingale project and um, there is no um, information in the public domain about that yet um, other private Building firms were also paid to work on the Nightingales. So there's been some information sort of trickle into, into the public domain about that, but, but not much known about the specifics there either. Um, 
this has been a really controversial area and the Public Accounts Committee, um, which is a government watchdog on spending, has actually criticised the NHS and the Department of Health um, about the secrecy surrounding the spending. And I think the really tricky thing is we, we I, I don't think a great deal is known about what, what is happening with the Nightingale hospitals at the moment. And they certainly weren't used much for coronavirus treatment. Um, they were, most of them I think were then mothballed and the government uh, about a month or two months ago announced that they would be used as cancer testing centres instead but there, there's been no real information about that issue publicly since so we, we don't really know is <laughs> the answer what, yeah. as to what, what's happened with them and we, we don't really know um, how, how money was spent to build them either. Yeah, because the London one was in, was it the Excel Centre, I believe, wasn't it? Which That's is normally right. where there's sort of the design home. The Birmingham one was in the NEC and the Harrogate one, I think, was in a convention centre. So they've been in, they're in big public buildings that are owned by other other people, basically. Yeah, so the question is whether they return to those uses or continue to use for NHS purposes. There's no, no clue of any of that. Yet. There's no clue. Um it, the Sunday Times reported at the time with the Excel, there was a big story just as it was opening um, about whether the government was paying rent to the owners of the building. Um, the owners actually then, um, I think, said, you know, said that they were going to forgo any rent and, and, and um, that the government was using facility free of charge. But we don't really know um, what arrangements are in place in terms of whether the government are paying for these buildings and whether that would have to continue there are questions there about how much longer private owners of these buildings might be willing to allow the hospitals to stay in them um, without receiving any rent from government or are they I mean, we just don't know <laughs> um yeah. so you know i think i would say well the project was a great idea and probably very necessary there there, there are still loads of questions about uh, about the funding around it and how, how government's actually running it and, and what they're paying for that and also, I'm going to ask this, you may have uh, probably, there's probably no uh, information on any of this at all, but with some of the companies you mentioned earlier where the PPE wasn't suitable um, or, you know, testing wasn't carried out correctly, does is any money recouped from that? Or, you know, is, is the evidence that they were paid for the job and, and the job happened however, you know, however well it went and, and that money's now gone? Again, I, I think we don't really know. Um it's tricky contract law areas, isn't it, where, um, you know, um, a deal doesn't work out like that. And I suppose in the IANDA case, they're saying they met the technical specifications as given by the government. Um, might there be a public call for some of that money to be returned if the project wasn't usable? I think arguably yes, but we, we just don't know. I mean, I think interestingly, um, three of the uh, bigger PPE deals are actually um, subject to legal challenges by a group called the Good Law Project. Um, I, the IANDA capital deal is is one of those and so a lot of information is actually being brought into the public domain by the good law project as as the disclosure process happens with government and they are receiving more documents and more information about those deals and so we may find out a bit more about about some of those questions as that process continues but at at the moment um i'm certainly i'm not aware of any um, of any repayments to government for, for any of these big contracts Sure. I'm slightly in two minds that I have definitely done comedy gigs where the audience weren't pleased at all, but I still got paid. Um, <laughs> some, some sympathies. Um, but I never charged 253 million. So maybe that's where I was going wrong. Um, you, have, you mentioned the Good Law Project there and, and obviously uh, your investigation is ongoing. But what's the way to kind of, you know, how is this going to be officially investigated? Is the legal route the, the way that it's going to happen? I mean, I know Labour are calling for an inquiry, which always seems to be one of those things that will happen maybe in 10, 15 years and will go on for another seven and we, <laughs> we'll never see a report. Um, so what's, you know, what's the best way that 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 uh, going to be able to expose more of this or find some transparency on this? And I suppose the more important question is what way can listeners support or kind of encourage transparency with, with government yeah. spending like this? I mean, I- Personally, I think an inquiry would be the best way to fully investigate it because um, it, the inquiry has powers to hold the government to account with producing documents that, that other people just don't have. Um, in, uh, Labour are actually calling for the National Audit Office to carry out the inquiry, who are another of the bodies that scrutinise government. And I think that process probably could happen more quickly. Um, I think Labour um, MPs are also calling 
quite simply for the government to come to the House of Commons and ask, answer questions about some of these deals. So they, they want to see that scrutiny in, in Parliament, um, which, which seems a fair call to me. Um, so I think the pressure will continue. Uh, I mentioned the Public Accounts Committee who are already looking at some of the spending decisions um, linked, linked to these um, emergency procurement contracts. The National Audit Office would be the other route. Um, Parliament has its own scrutiny committees as well, so you may start to see the, the sort of health scrutiny committees with Parliament starting to focus in on, on some of this spending as well. Um, all of that hopefully should happen a bit more quickly than a, a sort of a huge wide ranging public inquiry um, of the, the sort of national type that we, we've, we've seen for other issues. Um, so I think all of those things will be important. I think that scrutiny on the government isn't going to lessen and journalists continue to look at this area and, and you know, and opposition MPs also are are keeping an eye on it. Um, I, I guess if listeners are um, interested in this area and wanting to encourage further transparency, I would say write to your MP. Um, if you're um, uh, you know, a British company that feels you were unfairly left out of the process or had a good bid that, that seemed to be rejected um, without much comment, then again, contact your MP and ask them to, to start um, lobbying or asking questions on your behalf. I mean, something you mentioned right at the beginning of uh, us talking was, you know, that, that this all seems very complicated and that this all is a lot of detail and figures. And it's generally the sort of thing a lot of people don't pay any attention to in politics. Um, so I, I guess that there's a lesson to be learned that we should all be focused a bit just in, in general when thinking about things. We should be looking more at some of the, the nitty gritty details of it all. Because, I mean, there's a lovely bit at the end of your article which points out just how much this money compares to some of the money that's gone into kickstarting the UK economic recovery um, and some of the other areas and, and how it, it pretty much compares. Absolutely. And um, I think that was um, really on my mind all the way through the investigation is that I, I didn't want it to just be a dry piece about numbers or contracts or business deals. Um, this is about public money that um, is being spent on vital stuff like pe- life-saving PPE testing that's so important um, to provide us with a route out of lockdown and, and managing the pandemic. Um, Justin Madders MP I thought gave a great quote saying when you have nurses protesting on the street because they haven't had a decent pay rise for a decade you've got to ask if all of this money has been wisely spent and that summed it up for me. Um, you know, there's, o- there's only so much public money and if it goes into one thing it's not going into something else and, and you know that's that's sort of complex budget level stuff but um it, it is the public who have to sort of have their outcry and say if, if you want something if you want money spent on one thing and not another then you need to say and certainly if money seems to have been spent unwisely then um it's important that we look at that and scrutinize that um i think the the example you've just gave it was striking that the the amount of money allocated to test and trace um and PPE, i think i'd have to check um i could say yeah it's tw- so it's 25 billion um just for ppe and the government's test and trace scheme in the budget in eight in july um that almost equaled the 30 billion that was allocated to kickstart the uk's economic recovery so that that shows you the amount of money that we spent on ppe and testing uh, is equivalent to the, the the full amount that's being used to try and, and get businesses up and running again. So I think that that tells you a bit about just how important it is to, to scrutinise that spending. Um, well, thank you so much for breaking it down uh, for me and the listeners. It just it really helps as well to have someone talk through. As I said, uh, especially if someone like me, just look at all the figures and you think immediately think, well, this is boring and not important. It's incredibly important. Um, and uh, a final question, which is something that I ask everyone that we have on this show, is simply with the, the kind of hope to further information and knowledge, um, which is simply that apart from yourself and uh, your colleagues at HuffPost, um, who else, uh, where else would you recommend that listeners check out for kind of informative investigation? Or, or just where do you go for, for your info, your reliable info? Sure. I mean, on this particular issue, um, I would definitely flag that the Financial Times and The Guardian have done some excellent reporting on the issue. Um, Byline Times had a story out yesterday that, that's um, about government contracts as well. Um, I definitely would. Um, I, I sort of keep up with what those titles are, are reporting around um, around government contract spending, and, and they continue to do excellent work. Um, the Good Law Project, who I mentioned as well, are bringing a lot of um, information into the public domain. Um, so uh, I would keep an eye on their tweets and their website. There's a lot of very interesting information coming to light there. Um, in terms of just more broadly other investigations, I, I just read as widely as I can. Um, I, I think the Sunday Times does, has done excellent investigative work um, throughout the pandemic. Um, I follow 
smaller organisations like the Bureau of Investigative Journalism is, 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 um, is a great organisation to, um, to keep an eye on for independent investigative work. There's, there's been some really, really good um, investigative work happening. I think the BBC has done some excellent reports, actually. Um, I remember early footage coming from hospitals of, um, of what it actually looked like on coronavirus boards. I remember thinking at the start of the pandemic, I just can't envisage what it what it's like to be in a hospital and seeing that at the moment, they had some amazing footage of, uh, in the early days uh, of that. So I think there's been some, there's been some absolutely fantastic journalism going on around the coronavirus pandemic. It's been a very, very hard six months for journalists, but um, we've been working hard and I think there has been some brilliant reporting going on. Thanks so much to Emma for the chat and also to HuffPost UK and their legal team for giving the interview the OK. Yes, all of that had to go via the Huffington Post lawyers in the US, just in case we'd done the big libelous somewhere. But it turns out it was all OK. And if you want to join any dots together to form opinions on what the government may or may not be doing with all these funding allocation choices, then please do that in your own head on your own time. And I'll meet you by the third tree in the park at Moonlight and we can exchange important info using coded semaphore. Sorry, uh, what I meant to say was you can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Yule, Y-O-U-L-E, or find her articles on the Huffington Post UK site or their Twitter or Facebook. Also, as I've mentioned on this show before and me and Emma talked about, um, there are the Good Law Project. Um, If you want to follow their cases against the government about all those spending revelations, uh, you can find them at goodlawproject.org or on Twitter at goodlawproject. Who should I speak to for the next 200 episodes if we all survive that far into the future? What subjects have I completely failed to cover in all of that noise time of the last four years? What do I need to cover again? What cover band should I call into their own version of an interview I've already had on this show? No, sorry, not the last one, even though I really, really want to do that. It'd be brilliant. Uh, let me know any thoughts on who I should chat to by dropping me a line. And I mean, look, if you don't know this bit after 200 episodes, then may your deity of choice help us all. Go on. You can sing along at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can just release it in an article in a shit newspaper, then stop that newspaper from getting delivered, meaning that everyone will share your article online to own the libs. And then I won't look at it because it'll only be posted by people I've blocked. But still, I'd be impressed by the effort. As always, come on, you know the words. It's probably just best to email, isn't it? Oh, I really need some new material. Hello, I'm the ghost of Nye Bevan, and while I founded the welfare state, nothing has been a greater gift to the British people than the partly political broadcast. Listening to it is very healing indeed. Oh no, wait, not for me it isn't. I'm still dead. That's all for the 200th episode of the Partly Political Broadcast. And so I thought this week, as you reach the final minutes of what is a monumental number of shows, here is a special self-indulgent Pop Bro Hot Pole Ghost Fact! So, this podcast's first episode was on January the 19th, 2016. And which two Conservative MPs have stayed in the Cabinet throughout the duration of the existence of this show? No, I don't mean stayed in the cabinet like how Boris Johnson hid in a fridge or Jeremy Hunt in some bushes. I mean, which two MPs have survived successive prime ministers and despite catastrophic levels of incompetence have jumped from role they don't understand to role they don't understand? That's right, human bellows Liz Truss and the face of your children's nightmares Michael Gove. Gove was Justice Secretary when this show began after a successful run at ruining education and then being Chief Whip. Before then being Environment Minister and whatever he is now that means he mainly pops up to say he didn't say things that he said and that it's normal to test your eyesight by driving. Meanwhile, Liz Truss went from Environment Secretary to Justice Secretary to Chief Secretary to the Treasury to where she is now, shouting about cheese as Trade Secretary and defending Tony Abbott while also being Minister for Women and Equalities, aka all the things Tony Abbott hates. So you might think that, wow, that is a really depressing fact because so many years of failures and just generally having the personalities of misused dish racks and yet somehow they still have top jobs. But I would say, I think it just goes to show, no matter how shit you might be at something, at least you haven't been so shit that David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson have all liked you. I mean, I don't know what the opposite of a reference is, but I feel like handing in a CV to most places with those three names on it would cause an inhalation of breath and probably getting out some sort of insect repellent. So I hope this podcast outlives the careers of Gove and Truss, and you can help it do that by telling everyone you know to give it a listen and a subscribe, plugging it on social media, giving it a nice review on all them podcast platforms, and now you can also do it on the Acast app too. And by donating a few quid to me at the ko-fi.com forward slash bro site, the patreon.com forward slash bro site, or hitting the Acast supporter button. 
thank you 200% to Acast for hosting all 200 of these podcasts. Uh, my brother, the last skeptic, for supplying the music 200 times. To Cat Day for doing, well, quite a lot of linear notes uh, of all the episodes for a very long time. I didn't count. I probably should have checked. And to Katie Coxall for all the artwork that I only learned how to use for imagery about a year in because I'm an amateur. This will be back next week when Boris Johnson insists the deal was oven ready, but it's the EU's fault for having fan ovens when he's only ever had a true British aga, and that's why it's taken the UK ages to warm to an agreement which is British of them, while the EU's been full of hot air from the start. But before he finishes the metaphor, a journalist tells him agas were invented in Sweden, and he runs and hides in a fridge again. Bye! Howdy, I'm Kim Jong-un. No, I won't do the accent. And yes, I'm dead. Dead good at doing reps, reading your thoughts and walking on the sun. Oh, and making successful sourdough starters. Yes, I can. Yes, I totally can. You know what I like when I'm absorbing the power of the Earth's core into my buttocks and scaring off enemies with sonar nasal protrusions of immense strength? That's right. I love staring at the picture of the partly political broadcast podcast image. No, I can't listen to it. That sort of thing's banned here. Duh. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.